many men and women who have gone before us who leave us with lots of good work. And so that will help us. Today, though, we will look at seven verses. Let me pray. Father, this is your word. It is absolutely true. I pray today that it would convict us, it would comfort us, it would compel us to live as a local church in an evil world world, for your glory, exalting Jesus by the power of the Spirit in communion with believers who understand the mission, who submit to their elders, who lead through prayer and the teaching of the Word of God. I pray these things for your glory and for the message of Jesus Christ to leave this place and spread to the remotest parts of the earth. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, on the screen you should see a picture of a trellis in a vine. This is not the one outside of my house, but if you've been to my house, uh, you know that we have uh, some vines that grow up our red brick retaining walls. And they grow up every summer, they bloom in the summer, and they die out in the winter. It's time for us to cut them down. It is. It's a honeydew that we'll do next week. (laughs) And sometimes I wonder, if I were to put a trellis there, how much more those vines would grow. A trellis is a structure that's created to help vines and plants grow and and reach their full potential. Uh, Whether or not Ashley and I choose to put up a trellis is no big deal. In the grand scheme of things, life will go on. But when it comes to structure and growth in the local church, you must have both structure and growth. It's not an option. Uh, Today we're going to look at the necessity for structure to allow growth in the local church. If you have too little structure, uh, similar to our vines, they get overgrown and they can get out of control. If you have too much structure, it hinders growth. And Jesus calls us the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. For the branches to bear fruit that last we need structure in the local church. Structure is good for us. To do structure is a good thing. To have structure is a good thing. I I was thinking the other day, my uh, middle child, oldest son, Luke, um, doesn't know necessarily sometimes what's good for him. Uh, He has a little contraption that has a voice recorder on it now, and so he, he made this recording. I wish we still had it. He deleted it. But I wish we still had it, and this is what he said. I could just see him sitting in his room. Repeat, I do not like math. Repeat, I do not like math. Mom says it's good for me, but it's not. And so he takes that little recording, and he hands it to her before school one day, and he said, Mom, you need, to, you need to hear this. And she plays it. He doesn't know what's good for him. He needs to be taught what's good for him. And we need to be taught that structure is good for us. We live in a culture, we live in a day and age where... Uh, structure is set aside as something that um, is legalistic, something that uh, doesn't help, and really we just need to go with the Holy Spirit. But structure guides growth, and you're going to see that in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Here's the outline of the passage. You're going to see the problem. Uh, there is a problem. There's an absence of leadership trellis in the early church. And the solution, you're going to see a solution, the necessity of a leadership structure within the local church. And finally, in seven, you're going to see the results, the abundant growth of the gospel vine along the trellis of leadership. 
And so we're going to begin with the problem in verse 1 of chapter 6 in the book of Acts. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so from the get-go, we're going to see potential division and potential disorganization. And without structure, a church can lose unity and focus. Now, now is a transition word. You often see it in the narratives that say this is going into another section. In these days, what days are these? It tells you right there. Context. When the disciples were increasing in number. At this time, while the disciples were increasing... That is the immediate context. The bigger context than this is in chapter 1 and 2, there was a mission that Jesus had given the local church. In chapter 3 through 5, there was this opposition. There was persecution from the outside of the church. There was corruption from within. And just as we saw last week and we see in every summary statement in the book of Acts, there is this expansion. And when the church expands and grows... There seems to increase with it growing pains. There could be dissension, disorganization, and even division. Because we see here a complaint, a murmuring, a discontent, literally a whispering behind the scenes. A complaint arose. In preparing for this, I read uh, some commentaries, listened to a sermon on this, and it got this from John Calvin. I'm thankful. If Calvin said it, um, it's a good one. And here's what he says about pastors and elders. If they grumbled against the apostles, don't be surprised if they grumble to you. I like that. That if they grumbled here to the apostles, there's a complaint. And it's a legitimate complaint. So this isn't just grumbling like, why do we set up the chairs that way? Or that pulpit is too big. Or, or This was a legitimate complaint. And, and here's the good of it. Look at the, the last words of this first verse. There was a daily distribution going on. They were taking care of orphans and widows, as James said in 127. As God had said of himself in Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. This is a good thing that the church is doing. The church is taking care of its own. There is a daily distribution. The not so good is some of the widows have been overlooked. And assuming they are widows of age and they were unable to support themselves, as Paul told us in 1 Timothy 5, 3-16, something's going on here. We have the Hellenists. These are the Greek-speaking Jews. And we have the Hebrews. These are the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And the Greek-speaking Jews had been overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, some think this deals with race. Uh, maybe. I mean, at least uh, race is a part of the issue. The Hellenistic Jews versus the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews. But probably not, because we've followed the book of Acts. And so, thus far, any time there's been an issue, we saw it very uh, seriously and clearly in Acts 5, 1 through 11, that there, if there's a sin issue in the church, the apostles are not afraid to talk about it. So the issue is probably not race, because there is no rebuke, and the apostles are not afraid to give a rebuke. And so whether it's race or not, we're not told. But what we clearly see is a p- potential 
dissension in the church. In the church then and in the church today, Satan attacks God's peoples in different ways. Uh, he'll attack us with persecution from without. We've seen that in the book of Acts. And then we get discouraged and we, we, don't, we aren't as bold with the mission. Uh, we can see it in corruption, that pastors can disqualify themselves, people can disqualify themselves. We saw it at a church in Colorado Springs a year or so ago. A pastor disqualified himself for corruption of his own character. And you see that in 1 John 2. John teaches against the false teachers. There's persecution from without. Paul teaches against it in 1 Corinthians 5. There's corruption within. And Philippians 4, there is conflict. And Paul calls Yodia and Syntyche to get along and he calls for the people to gather around them and help them. And so three things, persecution, um, corruption, and conflict. One discourages us, one disqualifies us, and one can distract us and can lead to division. The potential division of a local church over administrative issues threatened the unity of the local church. That is the problem. And so what are the apostles going to do about it? Verse 2. The solution is uh, in impartiality and administration. And you see this. And the twelve, those are the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said to them, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Notice who it is that's speaking here. The twelve. These are the, this is early signs of the plurality of leadership, the plurality of elders. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. You can say it like this. The elders summoned the congregation. And so you're seeing a, you will see a declaration by the leaders to the congregation and you will see delegation from the leaders to the congregation. Now at first, this might seem arrogant. It is not right or it's not desirable for us that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. You may be thinking, well, that's kind of, kind of arrogant of them. I mean, are they above setting up chairs? Oh no, look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. There's no arrogance in this. There's only wisdom in the administration of the local church. This was their call, their primary call, the primary call of the apostles, and you see later throughout in the pastoral epistles, in the book of Ephesians, the primary call of pastors and elders, and everywhere you see pastor in the New Testament, they are elders. Elders are pastors. There are no separation. That's why, personally, I don't like to be called Pastor Judd. I'm not the only pastor of this congregation. And it's just weird when I hear that because I don't go around calling you layperson Don, right? I don't, I don't do that because that, that would be weird. And, and um, sound guy, gay, that, that's just weird. There at this time and have always been three shepherds. There's really been one chief shepherd, right? Let's get the, let's get the theology correct. There's a chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5 tells us that. Then there are under-shepherds. And there, as I've been here, there have been three and three shepherds, leading shepherds, who train others who help shepherd the people. Myself, Brian Foster, and Jim Kinzer. Those are your leaders. And so the leaders of this early church come and they make a declaration. It is important for us to stick with the preaching of the Word. And then there's this delegation. Therefore, because it's important for us to preach the word, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you 
seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. They make a declaration. They come with a plan. The apostles lead in the situation. Uh, Here's what they did not do. And these are mistakes that churches make. These are mistakes I confess to you today that I have made. Number one, they did not do. Y'all gather around. What do y'all think we ought to do? And and just, you know, open it up and just, uh, you over here. What do you think we ought to do? This isn't a democracy. Uh, Nor is it a dictatorship. They didn't come right out and say, hey, meals on wheels, done. We're not doing it anymore. If we can't get along, that's not what they did. Like I read before, they understood they were to take care of the widows and orphans, the fatherless. Nor were they distracted. You know what? There seems to be a problem. Tell you what, we'll take it upon ourselves. We'll be the ones that go and do this. Uh, They did not seek democracy. They didn't seek to destroy the good that was going on. But what they showed was leadership. They showed firmness in their own purpose. We will not give up the preaching of the Word of God to do this, but flexibility in the process. And they they led in the situation, and they involved the congregation in on the situation. Therefore, brothers, you pick out from among you, and then he gives the qualifications of those who would help with the situation. They sought the input of the congregation. They were both proactive, and they were interactive. But they didn't waver in their decision. And so Paul would go on in his letter to Timothy, and he would talk about the qualifications for deacons. Uh, This is that passage that kind of sets up the topic of deacons in the local church. And so you have men who would devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, and you have others that would come around them and support them in carrying out the ministry. And here you see, right here, four or five things that talk about who's qualified to to do this. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. Let's start with seven men. Why seven? It was the Jewish practice at the time of setting up boards. It was probably odd in the idea if there was a vote, there would be one who could uh, cast to see where the vote would go in one decision. There's another discussion for another day about unified elder boards and voting, etc. That's not what we got into in this passage, so I won't myself. Men. Why men? This is how the Lord has designed it from creation. From the beginning of time, there has always been co-equal men and women. Were, they were created in the image of God. They were co-equal. And at the cross, they are co-equal sinners in need of a Savior. But from the beginning of time, you've had a leader. The man was supposed to lead. Adam was supposed to lead. He was given the command. He was supposed to train his wife. And the woman was called a helper. And I've said it many a time, you can trace that word helper through the entire Old Testament. You see that it is even used for the name of God. And so there's, because men are called to leadership, doesn't mean women are any less. This is how God has designed it. It is very Trinitarian in nature. Because if we were to do a study on the Trinity, which I'll give you a 30-second study on the Trinity... God the Father is the one who gets all the glory. God the Son carries out the will of the Father. He says in the Gospels over and over and over again, I can do nothing on my own. I only do the will of my Father. Jesus Christ was the perfect person to show us submission because he was always in submission to his Father. And the Holy Spirit, you never hear him complain, the Holy Spirit exalted Jesus as God and Jesus sent him. 
And so you get God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all co-equal in their divinity, but there is a hierarchy even within. And that is how it's played out today. Seven men. Notice who these men were. They were picked out from among you. They were, if you're taking notes, grounded locally. There's no such thing as long-distance elders. It doesn't happen. And if it does happen, that is awkward. That is not how the Bible presents it, and that just gives root. The distance between those relationships creates a distance between those people and that congregation. Seven men who are among you. If you were to see a parallel passage, uh, you would go to 1 Peter 5. And Peter says it plain as day. So I exhort the elders among you, elders among you, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is coming to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And so, Jim, Brian, and I are shepherding a flock that is among us. We don't shepherd the flock that is among Craig Smith, that's among Ethan Moore. Those are good men who shepherd their flocks. It's a different flock. And so it gets really weird when we talk about, well, we've got to be a church to all churches. No, that's not what the Bible calls us to do. Pick out men from among you. What kind of men? Men of good character, of good reputation, or of good repute. Men who are guided by spiritual wisdom. They are both full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. That is, they are spiritual men who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and you see it in the character of their lives and they're practical men. They are men who are filled with the Word of God and men who are filled with uh, practical wisdom. And often, and I think Alistair begged for giving me this insight is often we, we try to select one or the other. The, the men are so spiritually minded, they're of no earthly good. They can quote scripture, but they can't help carry out the work of the ministry. Or men who are so savvy, but they, there's no spiritual element to their life. The apostles say it like this seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint. They're given the authority to carry out their responsibility, that they may carry out this duty or this task. They are grounded locally, they're of good character, they're guided by spiritual wisdom, and they're given authority to carry out their responsibility. That is the qualification. They are entrusted with authority, just as the apostles were entrusted in authority, they delegated that authority and said, let us do it this way. And notice that they came with a plan. They came with a plan. It wasn't up for discussion. It wasn't up for uh, to be revamped. It was they prayed about it and they brought a plan and the people didn't say, you know what, I don't really like that plan. We're going to go do this plan. No, that's not what they did. It says in verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so, what are they going to do? I mean, if, if they're not going to do the table work, and by the way, that doesn't mean that they were above doing table work. But, verse 4, there's your contrast. 
Instead of meeting the physical needs and responsibilities, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Prayer and the Word. It's a different kind of service. It's the, the same words being used here. That we should not give up the preaching of the Word to serve tables. But how will we serve? We will devote ourselves to the prayer and to serving the Word. We will bring the food to the people. It's, it's a devoted service. Romans 12, 12 says it's constant. Colossians 4, 2 says it's steadfast. This does not mean deacons do not pray or teach, but that's not their primary responsibility. And this doesn't mean pastor or elders do not help around the church, but that's not their primary responsibility. Two of your elders were here this morning setting up chairs until I called them and said, we must devote ourselves to prayer and the word. And they said, let us go. And so we went back to the library. No, and they didn't leave like, oh, whew, I'm done setting up chairs. They were serving, but that's not their primary responsibility. And notice how it says to prayer and to ministry of the word. And often we try to separate those. They are inseparable and they're both essential. I don't want to hear, I'm a person of prayer, but not a person of the word. Or I am a person of the word, not a person of prayer. They go to their gather. This is the air we breathe. This is the food we eat. These are the essentials. Too many churches get caught up in too many things and do too many programs, and they're too excited about everything else but prayer in the Word. There are two things that will go on every Sunday here. There will be prayer, and there will be the Word of God preached. Will we do Sunday school? We'll continue along as long as we can go. We may not do it. I'm just throwing it out there. Don't go freak out. I've got to run it by the elders. We, do, we are unified in one. We are, I'm just throwing it out there. Will we do kids stuff? We don't have to. Let's invite all the pumpkins in here. They can sit right up here next to my feet. won't bother me. But we will pray and we will preach. And that is what we devote ourselves to. These are the basics. These are so basic that Alistair Begg called his conference in 2012 the Conference of Prayer and the Word. And this is what he got when people said, so what are you doing in your conference? He said, we're devoting ourselves to prayer and the Word. And people almost apologized as if that theme wasn't good enough. You mean you're not doing like back handstands to see how many what pastors can do in this 25th century with technology and all that? No. We're devoting ourselves to prayer and the Word. He went on to say, we are not trying to teach something someone has never heard, but we're doing something someone should never, we're teaching some, something someone should never forget. Prayer and the Word. As some of you know, I'm involved in the fitness industry to some degree, and I've just seen um, one of the, the best articles I ever saw on it. I even put it in our weekly a few weeks ago because it was that. It was... I don't even know if this gentleman's a believer, but what he wrote uh, should be read by every believer. It's called The Long View because he said, I'm tired of all the shenanigans in the fitness industry of take this pill, do this weird exercise. I'm going with the basics. And I'm going with the basics with a long view. I want this to be, these basics to be around for a hundred years. And I read that and it struck me. That whether he knows it or not, is biblical. That we are living for something bigger than ourselves, that I want somebody, 
some person, I want a man preaching from this pulpit 100 years from now. Maybe even in this school. I don't know. But right here, 100 years from now, what are we doing to do that? We set up, study, compass. First we had five men, now we've got 15 men. Who knows what the Lord's going to do with that? But we're training men who are devoting themselves to prayer and the Word. And it's why prayer and the Word? Because our declaration of the Gospel is dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do this, when we focus on prayer and the Word, when pastors focus on this and they want to spend time doing this, this isn't because they're trying to shirk other responsibilities. I'm helped very much by Kevin DeYoung in his book, um, Crazy Busy. Here are some principles that he points out that are so good for us to understand as a congregation. Number one, every opportunity is not an obligation. Somehow we seem, if somebody comes up with a great idea, we got to implement it. That's just not the case. And, and that, that caring, we, we overemphasize that if you care about something, you will do something. And Kevin DeYoung made it very, very clear, and it's a great illustration. Our circle of concern, our circle of concern is bigger than our circle of influence. We don't have to do everything. Pastors don't have to do everything. Elders don't have to do everything. We must all stay focused. It is absolutely and fundamentally true. Less is more. We must do more of certain good things. We not, shouldn't do more of every good thing. We cannot. And I will show you from the Bible that Jesus Christ believes that. Jesus Christ lives that. And Jesus Christ calls us to that. In Mark 1, 35-39, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there, it's amazing what he says, and there Jesus read the top ten business books on how to lead the church. That's not true. He didn't. It says there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said, everybody's looking for you. I mean, you just healed many. Look at all you're doing, Jesus. We need you, bud. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. Prayer, preaching. You see the connection. One pastor did a sermon on less is more and there are great principles within it. God has designed, and he's talking to gentlemen like myself, Brian, and Jim. God has designed you to only do a few things well. Other people do well at what you do not do well. And this is the key principle of why I am not going to do everything in the church. Brian and Jim are not going to do everything in the church. We rob others of what they can do better than us. You will enable others to do more if you do less. Less is more. And he goes on to say leaders that lead outside their zone make a place unattractive for other leaders. And here's a great one. Great achievers are not well-rounded. 
John MacArthur has preached through the entire New Testament. He's done it for 42 years, and he spends the majority of his week preparing to preach on Sunday. He's been used all over the world because he is dedicated to one, yea, shall I say, two things. Prayer and ministry of the Word. Those who have the greatest impact focus on what they're supposed to be doing. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the Word. Why prayer? Because prayer changes things. Prayer changes us. And prayer changes others. Without it, we're doing it in the flesh. I've been reading uh, this week on prayer. And Dr. Tim Keller, in his book, Prayer, said something that just reshaped the way I think about prayer. Prayer is not a job for me to complete. I've got to get in, we've got to pray for the Brands, for the Barrows, for the Browns, and we'll just go down the bees today. Check, 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 check. That is not what prayer is. Prayer is a journey for me to continue on. And so I take time to do that, but I come back to it. And it just helped me with my mentality that I don't have to get her all done today. I can devote my time to this. And he goes on to say, this is how you build a relationship with God. So good of a reminder that our relationship is built on a responsibility to spend time to talk to and do tasks. But my wife made a great point. I was sharing this with her. And she goes, yeah, what would you think if I just came to you and every time we needed to talk, it's, here's your honeydew list. What? That's it? No relationship? No time to talk? No, just here, get, get her done. You're preaching about the trellis and the vine. Cut them down. It's time to go. But no, it's a relationship. And sometimes we spend five minutes together. Sometimes we spend five hours together. Oh, the days when we get to spend five days together. Just her and I. Cultivating that relationship. Prayer, and I have a quote up here for you, is what you want us to be doing. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, No man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. That is good. That should be up there. No man can do me a truer kindness in this world. You want to help me? I don't need your money. Pray for me. Seriously. Just pray for me. That would be the greatest thing you can do. I don't need gifts. I don't need... Just pray for me. Pray for whoever it is. Just pray. And why the word? Because this right here, my friends, you've heard me say it over and over again. This is the truth. This contains the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. It is God's word to us from Genesis to Revelation. It doesn't contain necessarily the whole truth in the sense that, yes, there are things outside the Bible that are true. We learn about gravity outside the Scriptures. But everything I need to know for life and godliness is contained right here from Genesis to Revelation. I don't need anything else. I don't need to go somewhere else. I can come here and I can figure out any issue that's going on in my life. I, I can use it for business. I can use it for counsel. I can use it to parent. I can use it in my own personal life. We can use it in our marital life. It is all we need. If you never read another book in your life, this is the only book you need. And it is the only book that will be preached from this pulpit. 
It's that valuable. It's that important. It's that powerful. John MacArthur said it like this, and you should see the quote up there. Why should we proclaim the wisdom of men when we have the privilege of preaching the Word of God? Why do I need to give up, get up here and give you? Here are 32 things that I can tell you about marriage that I read in so-and-so's book. I don't need to give you that. I need to take you to Ephesians and show you Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the church as well. And from there, we can discover, we get reminded of all the issues. Look at verse 5 of Acts chapter 6. And when they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. That the gathering heard them. They didn't hear arrogance. They didn't hear these guys are trying to control everything. Here's what they heard. These guys have a plan. These guys are asking me to be involved in it. I trust these guys, and this pleased the whole gathering. And so what did they do? They chose Stephen, a man of full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor. Nicanor, by the way, is the only Palestinian name, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, I think that last phrase, a proselyte of Antioch, is to show that all of these, besides Nicholas, were of Jewish descent. They just had Greek names. And so these were the Hellenist Jewish men who were chosen. This was wisdom by the congregation, right? To take care of the Hellenist widows. And you will notice that Stephen is prepping you for chapter uh, 6, 8 through 8, 1. is a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of discussion out there about what does it mean to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We don't ever wrestle with what does it mean to be full of faith. We always wrestle with what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit. That fullness was evident in his life. It was evident in his behavior. And that fullness is permanent. What is the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. So let me show you from the Bible... And I want you to turn there if you have your Bibles or scroll in your digital Bible. I want to show you two parallel passages. I want to show you what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit. And then I'll give you a simple connection that will help you for the rest of your life. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see there? You and I can understand the will of God. It is not something secret. It's not something hidden. We can understand it, and we should understand it. Otherwise, our days will be foolish. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Contrast that. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, or be filled with the Spirit. This is not saying if you are sober, you're full of the Holy Spirit. That is not the context. Keep reading. Watch this. Paul gives you the answer. Be filled with the Spirit. How are you filled with the Spirit? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems from that passage that to be filled with the Spirit is to live that obedient life that a Christian lives. You address one another, you sing with hymns and spiritual songs, you make melody in your heart, you're a thankful uh, people, 
It's so sweet to hear when we bow our heads to pray at night at the dinner table. Tell us what you're thankful about. Kids, just tell you what's on their heart. They thank God for everything. Legos, Nerf, mom and dad, the friends. It's just, it's neat to see because they're unencumbered by all the, the niceties that we get trained on later in life. But they are thankful. That is what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now keep your finger there, okay? You're in Ephesians. Keep your finger there. I want you to see this because it is so clear it doesn't need to be missed. Ephesians 5 and then flip over to Colossians 3. These are parallel passages. When Paul was writing in prison, he wrote to the Ephesians and he wrote to the Colossians and he had similar things to say to them. And so we can, much like we compare the Gospels, we can compare these two letters and we can come to some conclusions. You're in Colossians 3. Notice in Ephesians 5, it will go on to talk about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. If you go to Colossians 3, he's talking about putting on the new self. And you see in verse 18, it talks about wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. But right in between there, starting in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has complained against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so must also you forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now watch this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be, there's that idea of thankfulness. Key verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to, to God in your hearts. You flip back, it's the almost exact representation as in Ephesians. Addressing another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts. What's the point? Why do you go? Why do you belabor the text like that? It's because be, to be full of the Holy Spirit is to act out in obedience what you know to be in the Word of God, plain and simple. Plain and simple. We try to finagle it. We try to do other things. Plain and simple. Let's make this idea really easy to be full of spirit and wisdom is to walk under the guidance of the scriptures. That's what it means. To know your Bible and to live it out in the rest of your life. It is not necessarily, catch this, this I hear this a lot, fill us with your Holy Spirit. That's used one time in the Gospels prior to the Spirit coming. The Spirit has come and He has filled us. He, he has taken up residence in our hearts. He has sealed us. We are done. The command... The command, it's not a request. It says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. So we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit primarily as we fill our minds with the Word of Christ. Now some of you think, oh, you've just, you're, you're zapping the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh no, I assure you, when I, my mind is full of the Word of God and I'm walking in obedience, that is when I know I'm full of the Holy Spirit. He has given me all the spirit he's ever going to give me. It is my responsibility to walk in submission to him. Walk by the spirit and I will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. God doesn't play games. God doesn't play games. I'll give you a little bit of spirit today. A little. He doesn't play games. He has given you all that he 
has given you. And so we go to the Word. We fill our minds with the Word of Christ. Let it dwell richly within us. And then we will walk in obedience. Now back to Acts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 6. And so the people are pleased. The people are pleased. They're not upset with their leaders. They're pleased with their leaders. And so they, after they had chosen, remember these are seven men from among them. They didn't go off in the distance to Rome to find those who were going to take care. They set before the apostles. These they set before the apostles. And they, there's discussion as who the they are. I believe it is the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the apostles planned. The congregation was involved. And the apostles approved and led. That is the process. Leaders lead. They involve the congregation and leaders make decisions. When that structure is in place, the church flourishes. When it's not in place, it can get out of control and growth can be hindered. Why all this? It leads to the fifth summary verse in this first major section. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples greatly, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Jesus said, go Make disciples of all nations. And now they're multiplying. Starting right there in Jerusalem. And so the problem was potential dissension and division. The solution was structure and leadership. And the results is we see more conversions. The word of God continued to increase. Or as the New American said, kept on increasing. The idea is this is what happened over a long period of time. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. They say in Jerusalem because Luke's getting ready to take you outside of Jerusalem to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it started right at home. That is why necessarily uh, here when we do mission work, I want us to get excited about doing missions in Eagle, Gypsum, in this valley. Do I want to reach the world? Absolutely. I've got a 15-year plan to reach the world. I want to train men up, send them out. I want to be unowned our own sending agency. But that's going to take time. Until then, we can be witnesses right here. We will see next semester how it goes from Jerusalem out. And a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. God opened the eyes of the religious leaders who were so uh, blinded by their own text to see the beauty. One study Bible says it like this. The priests mentioned in verse 7 are significant. It was this very group up to this point that was the most vehement, oppo vehemently opposed to the gospel. This reminds us of the scope of the gospel. It is to be preached to everyone, even those who hate Christians and desire their death. Priests and Pharisees were a major group of antagonists during the life and ministry of Jesus. They instigated and influenced his death, and Jesus reserved his strongest words for these leaders. Their faith in Christ in Acts is a reflection of the power of the gospel and the grace of God to those who oppose. And so in light of the proper structure, this gospel vine grows. The trellis is necessary for the vine. A leadership structure inside the local church is necessary for it to grow. And so I leave you with a few things if we just wanted to go a quick summary over the, ver over the passage. In verse 1, understand the necessity of programs. Do not hear from the pulpit we're cutting all programs. 
but let us hold every single program with an open hand. Yea, even company. Amen? If it's not serving God's purpose, if it's not fulfilling it, let us hold it with an open hand. There are no sacred cows. Issues arise. We don't always see the gaps. And if you see something that's going on in the church, you want us to get better at whatever, bring it to our attention. We have open elders meetings every month, and we say it every month. Rarely do people come. Uh, we're going to start having food. Maybe people <laughs> Fried chicken and taters. Are, no, I'm just kidding. But we're, they're there. They're open to you. Uh, someone mentioned to me a week or so ago, hey, when you did communion, I didn't get a sense it was clear about the, the, who the table was for. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. We will discuss that today. See, we're here. We're learning. We always want to get it right. And we have a need for some programs, but we don't have to have all programs. And widows, we must serve Recognize the biblical call for leaders to lead. Leaders lead. Leaders lead. They stay devoted to what they're called to do, and they lead. They delegate. You will not see me uh, with my hands in every ministry. I want to be updated. I want to know what's going on. But I'm not meeting with Jessica every week. This is what you've got to do. Here are the 32 things you need to accomplish. Why do I keep saying 32? I don't know. 48. Here are the 48 things you need to accomplish for me this week as you direct me. We don't do that. Lead. Delegate the leadership. Now, I just like I've told you, I've fallen into this trap too much. I've, I've, I've done the whole democracy thing. Hey, what do you think we should do? And then you, you get everybody gives their opinion. And if you don't, you know, I had to even say, I am not here to take every opinion and morph it into something ugly so that everybody can be happy. But I've also gone the other way and said, no, we'll put an end to this. The best way to do it is to say, here's a plan. You're involved in the plan. Let's go forward with the plan. The work of Christians attracts, but the word of Christ converts. So we must stay focused on this word. The word of God, which Jim, Brian, and myself as the elders are responsible. Did you know, and I've said this before, we will give account for your souls. That is one of the most convicting verses in Hebrews that I will stand before God giving an account for your soul. And I want to be able to do that with joy, and I want to be able to say, yes, I invested in this flock. Jim invested in this flock. Brian invested in this flock. Chris, was when he was an elder, on, he invested in this flock. This is what we do. And we as elders have two primary responsibilities, prayer and the word. Why the word? I'll give you another quote from Calvin. The pastor or the pastor elder ought to have two voices. One for the gathering of the sheep and another for the driving away of wolves. We want this to be a place of holiness. We want this to be a place of safety. And so we proclaim the word of God. And it does two things. It draws some in and it drives others away. That's all from verse 1. Verse 2 through 6, be a part of the solution. This is, the, this is the precursor for church government. That, this is, that You were a part of the solution because we came with a plan. Here's Brian Foster. We are presenting him to you as an elder. We gave you a full month. Say, if you have anything about this guy, please bring it to our attention. And uh, of those 30 days, there was only one day, Brian. I'm just kidding. Nobody brought anything. But that is where it, that, that's where it is. That we want to be open and honest with you. This is why... 
We didn't do it at the last uh, family lunches. Why do we do it with the, uh, some of the family lunches? Here's our finances. Here's where we're spending our money. We want you to know. We want you to be a part. And finally, in seven, let's keep the main thing the main thing. We are at a perfect stage. We're starting to see some growth. This is the time to say, what are we going to be good at? What are we going to focus on? What are the elders going to focus on? What are we going to focus on as a church? And stick to it and not buy into every idea that might come our way. What happens when we don't do this? I was talking to Jim earlier this week, and he told me about a church in the valley that didn't do this. He told me about a church that used to be in this city that did not stay focused on the main thing. And that pastor, I visited with him at a conference a few months back, and he he took responsibility. He said, "I, I was so humbled, I wasn't the right man at the right time. That he didn't take and give it structure. He thought the vine could just grow, and everybody came, and there were too many cooks in the kitchen, and and I, I said that this church was going to fold, and, and Jim said, oh, no, you need to use the biblical language. That church died as a body of Christ that died because there was no trouble. You see the severity of structure. It's not because we said so. It's not because this is it. But we put prayer and wisdom into the things we're doing. And when we, we don't go down that road, when there is no trellis, the mind can get out of control, and if there is no structure, churches die. I don't want that. I don't want that. It's 2014. I'm dead in 40, 50 years. I want to see Eagle Bible Church go on for 100 plus years. Do you, do you have that in your mind? Do you think about it like that? You think about Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church that's been going on for hundreds of years. That's what I desire. That's what Brian desires. That's what Jim desires. And to help do that, the presence of biblical structure facilitates gospel growth. Biblical structure facilitates gospel growth. It is not the only thing, but it's a necessary Father, I pray as we take communion now that we reflect on what we've just heard and prepare our hearts to receive the elements. I thank you for Brian preparing to teach us again, to keep it afresh of why we do what we do. Lord, let us be a church that has enough structure so the vine of gospel growth grows beautifully, nourishing this culture and beyond. I pray these things in Jesus' name.